here we are. I'm going to stand down here. The tent has spoiled me. I like to get closer to you. And I also know that it's easier to uh, engage and to keep people awake. I know it's a challenge. You've eaten well because I saw what you ate. <laughs> I ate. I ate it too. And when the belly is full, the eyes get heavy. But uh, here we are. I ask that you bear with me one final time as we conclude this series of gospel meetings. If you're here as a visitor, we welcome you and we're thankful for you. And it is our goal to make it to heaven. Glory land is not so far away. And we're going to talk about that very thing today. But in get, getting there, we have to run the race. And the Christian life is compared to a race. It's interesting how the Bible compares the Christian life in using various analogies or metaphors it's compared to a boxer who is fighting a soldier who is battling and to a runner who is racing and in Hebrews chapter 12 oh, there we go this is a very familiar passage to Bible students and I'm sure to all of you here you know this well, but it begins with the word therefore, and he says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with, with uh, endurance the race that is set before us. So I want to stop there for a second and talk about the fact that when a runner prepares for a race, what he does not do is he does not prepare the course because the course is out of his control. The course is set before him. And so it is with life. We do not prepare by controlling the course. The course is set. There will be hills, there will be valleys, there will be difficult, difficulties, there will be trials, there will be challenges that we all face. There will be detours, there will be things that we did not expect and would not have hoped for. But we encounter them because it is a, a course that is set. But what a runner does do is a runner prepares himself. And the Hebrew writer is actually giving us some keys, some helps in preparing ourselves and running the race. And the first thing that he does is he says that therefore we are since surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I want to stop for a second and talk about the fact that he begins the chapter with a connector. The word therefore is therefore a reason. It is always, or I should say predominantly, a word that connects doctrine with duty. What he has previously said with what he's about to say. And so chapter 12 is connected to chapter 11 with therefore. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he is 
using this figure, this picture that I think perhaps could have been borrowed from the ancient Olympic, Olympiad or the, the former, uh, the, the, the ancient Olympic uh, races where the, the runners in the race would be running in a, a, an arena that is, that is uh, constructed and they would have uh, various statues or busts of former winners stationed around the track. So while the runner would be running and being encouraged by the cheers of the crowd, he would look at those silent statues that would be telling them, we won, you can too. We won, you keep going, and you can win too. And the Hebrew writer is telling us, we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, former winners, former champions, former folks who were victorious in spite of their challenges and difficulties. And that's what we see in chapter 11. Usually we use chapter 11 to define faith and use uh, these examples uh, to illustrate that faith is active and it is obedient and, and rightly so. Because every example we see is of a man or a woman who by faith did something. By faith Abel offered. By faith Noah built. By, Ab by faith Abraham sacrificed. And so on and so forth. But there's a, a, a deeper insinuation too. It's not only did they act on faith, but they endured by faith. Abel was the first martyr. He was the first one who, who he, uh, he is punished for doing what is right. His brother rose up and killed him. Why? Because his deeds were righteous and his brother's was, was wicked. So by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. And uh, though he is dead, he is still speaking. Ah, he's the witness. A great cloud of witness that you, you have something to learn from me. Noah, here is a man that, it, that preached for 120 years to a disbelieving generation about God's judgment. They no doubt scoffed and they ridiculed him, but Noah by faith prepared the ark to the saving of his house. Yes, he condemned the world, but he saved his house. And Noah, even though he was, uh, was in the minority, even though uh, the world was against him, God was for him. And through faith, by faith, and through his obedient faith, he built the ark and he was saved. That's a witness. That's a testimony. Abraham, here is a man that God called, even though he was an old man, God made a promise. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all families of the earth through you, even though he had no children at the time. God calls him to leave his family, to leave his country, and to go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and, bl and curse those who curse you. And in your seed, all families of the earth would be blessed. Eventually, God was going to bless him with a son that he was going to demand and command that he offer as a, a, a burnt offering. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to do that, burn his only son whom he loved, whom God promised 
believing that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Ah, what a witness. A man who was so faithful that he put God above everything and everyone. And Joseph, ah, who, who could be a greater man, a greater testimony than this lovable, likable man who was hated by his own brothers? Here is a man that was despised by his own brothers, thrown into a pit, ended up in a prison, and then exalted to a palace. And when his brothers came and thought that he, they were going to end up in a prison of Joseph's making, Joseph reminded them, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph, he did what was right when it was hard, and he did what was right when his life was easy. What an example. And Moses, another example, who chose when he came to the age to make a decision of what he must do with the rest of his life, even though he was raised in the magnificent palace of Pharaoh and he had the perks and the privileges of a prince. He made a decision to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin because he saw the one who was invisible. What a witness. We could go on. Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, David, Samuel. And he ends the chapter by talking about others unnamed who were sawn asunder, who were, who were uh, put to death, but, but uh, they endured. And the world it itself was not worthy of their existence, not worthy of their presence. And yet uh, they, were, they, they looked like they were defeated, but ultimately they were victorious. And we, friends, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness. And here's the message, and here's the point, and here is the preparation. We run to win because it can be won. And many times we, we run the Christian life with defeated faces or uh, this pessimistic idea. Yeah, the world may be falling apart, but we don't have to be. Uh, we can be victorious, and that's the idea. Therefore... Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Know that you can win, but there are some things you must do to win. And uh, just like a runner uh, getting up at the starting line, he has to lay some things aside. He doesn't carry the baggage. He doesn't carry the training weights with him. He sets those things aside and he has every advantage. He doesn't want to be entangled by the weight that is unnecessary or the sin that is detrimental to his effectiveness. And sometimes we've got to do the same. To run the Christian life, you've got to be willing to, to lay some things aside. Maybe not necessarily sin in and of themselves, but they will hold you back. They'll weigh you down. Things that are not healthy, things that are not efficient, or helping you to be effective 
in running the Christian race. And there are some things that are absolutely sinful that we are going to have to stop. Before we uh, baptize anybody, we always have to uh, give them what the plan of salvation is. Of course, baptism is the fruition, the culmination of someone's step into Christ. But before they're baptized, they have to believe and they have to repent. That is, they uh, change their mind about their life and they change their behavior. So they have to lay aside some things and lay it down. And there are some old habits that we have to break. New priorities that we have to set. Maybe relationships that we have to change. Lay aside every sin which so easily ensnares us. You know what sin does? It traps us. It deceives us. You know what a snare is. A snare is a trap that's got a little bait and it lures us into it. And once we think we got it, we're caught by it and we're ensnared. And that's what sin does. It seems harmless. It seems like a party, but it ends up being... Um, our death. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, do, not, do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? He's talking about an earthly race, and generally speaking, when somebody enters a race, there's one winner. Everybody runs against everybody else. Not in the Christian race. We don't, we don't just have one winner. In fact, we don't win unless we help somebody else win. That's the point. But he's saying here, run in such a way that you may obtain it. That you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That means you're going to have to exercise self-control. You've got to train yourself. You've got to work. You've got to, you've got to exercise. You've got to prepare. And the one who actually competes for the prize uh, understands that. Now, they do it for... Uh, a perishable crown, an, a perishable crown, a, a trophy that's going to fade. I've got some news for you that might be shocking, but I've got an attic full of trophies. Fifth grade trophies, I might add. <laughs> Beyond fifth grade, I didn't win any more trophies, but they're up there. And uh, they're in a box. They, you open the box and it's got dust all over it because you know, I, I don't set them out anymore. It's kind of embarrassing. Can you imagine? My kids, would, they shake their heads when I just remind them that I have those fifth grade trophies. And here's the point. I probably ought to get rid of it. But it makes for a good illustration now. What's the point? Fifth grade trophies. What if it's not? You know, we spend our time and we dedicate ourselves to winning things in life that are not going to amount to, as we say, a hill of beans. A perishable crown and we'll drag ourselves from here there and we'll spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars to make those things the priority and uh, and it's a perishable crown but Paul says we're, we're running for something better greater it's an imperishable crown therefore I run thus and listen I run this way not with uncertainty. You going to heaven? Well, I hope so. I think so. Want to. Maybe. That's the goal. You don't have to run with uncertainty. You should not run with uncertainty. 
Because the race can be won. And the reason it can be won is not because of confidence in us, but because of confidence in Him of what He has done and who He is and what He allows us to do and the victory He gives us. It's like I said yesterday when someone um, was concerned about the sins that they have committed. Will God forgive me? Well, I don't really know what kind of sinner you are. But we know what kind of Savior He is. And that's the point. And that's the, and that's the power. But I discipline my body and bring it under, under subjection. So in spite of what Jesus did, there's something that we must do. And we have to discipline our body. Paul, Paul says, I discipline. He says, Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. One translation says, I, I buffet my body. Now, we buffet our bodies, don't we? Not a lot of sacrifice, not a lot of pain, not a lot of prayer and fasting that goes on many times. But Paul says that there's some denial that takes place and should be. We discipline our body, bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so in preaching the truth, he says, I need to make sure I'm living it myself and I'm running the race. And I run because I'm going to win and I'm going to win because of him. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Now that's the end of the, the verse there. But up beyond, beyond that, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That, that, those two statements there focus our attention on Jesus. You look to Jesus and you consider him. And what do you do? You keep your eyes on him. Remember Peter stepped out of the boat and he was walking on water doing the impossible, doing what the others would not or could not have done because of their uh, cowardness. But Peter's walking on the water and he's doing the impossible and he sees Jesus and he's going to him and then he sees the waves and he sees the wind and he begins to sink. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. And here he says, when you look at Jesus, you see someone that had a focus. You consider him who endured such hostility against sinners. Against, uh, uh, hostility from sinners against himself. People treat you right always. They're always kind to you. They're always fair to you. No. People in the church ever use you, ever abuse you, ever mistreat you. It happens. Brethren that you love and respect disappoint you. It happens. Doesn't make you any different than Jesus. They did the same thing to Him. And we're not converted to people. We're converted to the Lord. And when we uh, keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ... We see an example for us to consider lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. And it is easy to grow weary, isn't it, and discouraged in our souls. That's why he says the second thing. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. 
The word endurance is an idea that means patience. It means long suffering, suffering long. You suffer, but you endure. You hold up. You withstand up underneath the pressure. And you do that because you understand that this is a long haul. It's a lifelong commitment. You don't flirt with it or experiment with it. It's a commitment like a marriage. It's a vow to the Lord. And you don't put all of the wood on the fire before morning. You put, you run with endurance. Now there was a man that uh, ran several different marathons and uh, he particularly ran the, in the Boston Marathon and he was asked, what does it take to be successful to run 26.2 miles? He said, well, it takes intense training for three months. And when I read that, I thought, three months? It'd take me three years to train for a marathon. But he said, three months? And he said, you've got to not only be physically fit, but you've got to be mentally tough because it's very grueling, not only on your body, but upon your mind. But he said there are actually two particular times in the race that are pivotal, that are crucial. The first is at the beginning. Because when you feel so good, you're tempted to exert yourself and you run too fast and you don't have enough energy. You get wore out and you just you think, oh, I made a mistake. I felt too good and it felt good and I just now I'm tired and I can't do it anymore. He said there's a good rule of thumb that they go by when you feel good. Slow down when you feel bad, speed up. Okay, that's kind of an analogous of the Christian life, isn't it? But he said, really, the hardest part of the race in a marathon is the 22nd mile. Runners call it hitting the wall. And in the Boston Marathon, at the 22nd mile marker, there is what they call Heartbreak Hill. And you run up this, this hill, and you, he describes it. There's a policeman and a cherry picker with a bullhorn calling out to the runner saying, You've just run Heartbreak Hill. It's all downhill from here. And he said, It must be a descent the last four miles, but you look and you see there's still a lot of hills up and down, up and down. And uh, you hit the wall. It is so discouraging at Heartbreak Hill. And isn't that analogous? Of the Christian life. You can be successful. You can run for miles years and then it hits you and when you think you're over heartbreak hill there comes another one there comes another one I gave this lesson one time back in Oakdale at home and there was a, a brother in the church that met me in the back and he had actually run a marathon I don't really speak from experience and I'm not sure if my physique gives that away but but he says you know Jimmy the hardest part for me was the point two the point two, the very end of the race. And it's probably true for many people. 
when it hits you, heartbreak, hill. Did you know there was somebody else that faced the heartbreak hill? And the Hebrew writer tells us about that hill. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. But he says, but for the joy that was set before him. What does that mean? Did Jesus enjoy the cross? Did he look forward to the cross? Not on your life. He despised the shame. He prayed in the garden, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't enjoy the cross, but it was something beyond the cross. And he endured the cross, despising the shame, because he saw the crown beyond the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is an example that yes there are things James would say my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Does he tell us that we have to enjoy pain and we have to relish in suffering? No. But the joy is in seeing beyond it seeing the maturity that comes from it, the benefit and the blessing that we can actually obtain as we endure and as we run with joy, run with endurance, and we finish, rather, with joy. That's what Jesus did. He finished with joy. This language, I'm about done here, but this language is used by Paul in Acts 20, verse 22 through 24, and see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that the chains and tribulations await me. Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and you know what? I don't really know what's going to happen when I get there. He suspected that he might just die, and this might be the end of his life. And therefore, he says, none of these things move me. Paul said, I don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't much matter what will happen. But I know one thing. I'm not going to be moved from the course that I'm on. Nothing's going to sway me. I do not count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. Paul said, come what may, bring it on. I'm going to endure it and I'm going to make through it, get through it because of the joy that is, that is beyond the finish line. He saw the crown past the cross. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul didn't die. We know that. He thought he might, but he didn't. He appeals to Caesar, eventually goes to Rome. He goes cast into prison and he gets out. And then he is put back into prison again and he is going to actually die but before he does he writes a letter to a young preacher friend named Timothy 
where he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And then he adds, and then he puts you in it, and he puts me in it. And he says, not to me only, but to all those who loved his appearing. Glory land is not so far away. That's heaven. And Paul said that that's not something that is just reserved for me. It's reserved for you. So finish what you started. Don't, don't stop. I want to cl close here by uh, telling a personal story told you I'm not a runner, but there have been times that I have run. I, you know, I'd gain a little weight, and I'd think, I need to lose some weight, and I'd try to exercise. And I've lived in uh, California now four years, but before that I lived in Wichita Falls, Texas. Most of you know that. Most of you know about Wichita Falls, and it's a hot place to live. And uh, there was a brother in the church there, still lives there, his family lives there as well with him and he uh, his name is Scott Lynn and he is a tennis coach um, for the University of Midwestern State and he's a good friend of mine and he takes pity on me from time to time and tries to encourage me when I was living there he said Jimmy I'll help you get in shape I'll run with you on Sundays on Sundays I'll run to your house and then I'll run with you and Sometimes I would go to his house and run with him. We were only about three miles apart. And so we ran one summer. Wasn't the greatest idea to start running in the summer at Wichita Falls. But I, I want to share with you three lessons that I learned from Lynn. The first lesson I learned about running is that once a week was not enough. We'd run on Sunday night, and every, every Sunday night, it felt like the first time. I should be in shape by now. But all of the gains that I, I won was, were lost in, through the week. I thought, you know, really isn't that true spiritually? Once a week is not enough. God expects us to worship, of course, and we worship. We have available uh, opportunities for the members to worship on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. But I'm not even talking beyond uh, be, uh, about that even. Uh, uh, three times a week is not enough. God expects us to feed on Him and to exercise daily. And so I thought, that's true, once a week, not enough. Second lesson I learned is early on he tells me, Jimmy, whatever you do, don't stop until you're done. Don't stop until you're finished. And uh, I'd go real slow. And he said, what is, you can go real slow. Just don't stop. Just keep moving. And I didn't. But there would be a few times when I was running by myself when I did. And I quickly learned why. I'd be running and my lungs would hurt. So I'd stop and my legs would hurt. 
And I found quickly that it was very difficult to start running once I stopped. And there are people that will stop running in the, Christ, the Christian life for one reason, and you know what? They'll find a multitude of reasons not to start again. So don't stop until you're finished. The third lesson from Lynn. One day, he said, Jimmy, we're going uh, to go a different path than our normal route. Caught my attention. I thought, well, what's, uh, what's he got in mind? He said, now, it may be shorter and it may have more shade. Caught my attention again. I like shady, short. Not only is it alliterated, but it really made sense to me. You have to, you know, uh, run just a few, few minutes shorter and have a little cool breeze. That's very appealing. But you know what? As we began to run the way he wanted us to go, I thought, this is not shorter. And the sun, evidently he calculated it wrong, but the sun was right down on the road that we were on. There was not a, an inch of shade on that run. And you know what I found myself doing? I got mad at Scott. Now I didn't talk, because I can't talk when I'm running. But I managed to exhale one question to Scott. I said, Scott. He said, yes. And then a few minutes later, I'd finish. I said, Scott, do your students hate you? <laughs> I'll never forget what he said. He said, they always thank me later. And sometimes God sends us on a different path. He never promises shade and he doesn't always guarantee that it will be short. But he says, you will thank me So you keep running and you keep going. Don't stop until you finish. And when you finish, you will finish with joy and you thank him and you endure and you praise him. And the Hebrew writer said, let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, but he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where you're going. That's where I'm going. And that's what it's about. And that's what we're doing. Oh, yeah. Optimistic positive, hopeful, thankful because of what he's done. And that's our race. It's not a sprint. 
It's a marathon. So don't stop at the point two. Two left, now keep going until you're finished. And maybe you're here today and you've not yet even begun. I don't know. The minds and the hearts of everyone here. Wouldn't it be sad to, to get to the finish line only to discover that you haven't even been entered into the race? Get into the race. Come believing in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith before Him, uh, before man, and be baptized. I don't have it up there. But be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. And uh, the Lord gives you new relationship, new hope, new family, new beginning. And if you're here today and you need that, we, we, we need you. We need you. And you need God. And if you've taken those steps and you need the Lord uh, to forgive you of anything, any sin that has beset you, anything that has entangled you, and you need the prayers of the church that we might encourage you and pray with you, we'll do that as well. If you stand in need, please come while we stand and while we sing.